0: It's a passage in your word, and so it's something that we need to talk about, particularly as we talk about this area of relationships, uh, because we live in a world of words, and our relationships are full of words, and we're constantly interacting uh, and talking with one another, and so, Lord, we treat words so carelessly. And we ask you to forgive us. Father, would you come and show us that words aren't ordinary. That they actually have great value and great importance in this world and in our lives. Would you bring us to repentance? Break us for the ways we use our words in unhealthy and sinful ways. Father, lead us by your grace to use our words to be life-giving, to be words of life uh, so that we can encourage and build up and edify those around us. Father, more importantly than anything else, we need to see Jesus. And so help us uh, to experience his grace and mercy uh, as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a world of words, don't we? And I don't know you all deeply, uh, personally, on a personal level, on on a deep level, every single one of you, but I do know something about all of you, and that is that you talk. Every single day, you talk, and your words really fill up your relationships. Your words give life to your relationships. They give your relationships meaning And they set the tone for the relationships that you're in. Every day you tell people what you think of them. You tell people what you want from them. You set expectations in those relationships and you tell people what you would like to enjoy with them. But you know, as well as I do, those often don't come in these grand moments, do they, in the relationship where you have these just over-the-top, intimate, deep talks where you are just so eloquent in the way you've communicated with your friend about uh, what you want, what you expect, and uh, what you think of them. It doesn't happen that way, does it? How does our relationships and the words that we share with one another, how do those things often happen? They happen in the mundane of life, don't they? They happen in everyday life, often with little quick side comments. For example, they happen as you're getting ready for class, as you're talking to your roommate. Or they happen as you're on your way in your car to go to yayas to get yogurt. Or they happen when you're running or working out with a friend, or they happen over lunch or over coffee at Bottle Tree, or maybe even during a commercial of your favorite TV show. And because our words have become and are often so casual, so mundane, so ordinary, it is often easy for us to forget the impact that our words actually have on every single relationship that we're engaged in. I mean, think about it. There's never been a good relationship... Without good communication. And likewise, there's never been a bad relationship that didn't, in part, get that way because of something that was said at some point in the relationship. Friends, our ability to express ourselves with words is anything but ordinary. How do we know? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to go there, but think about Genesis chapter 1 and what you know of Genesis chapter 1 if you know that portion of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1 was the very beginning of creation and there were the very first words ever spoken. And the very first words ever spoken were not spoken by a human being. Who were they spoken by? They were spoken by God himself when he created the world and brought it into existence. And that is so significant, and the implications for that are enormous. Here are a few. One of the ways that you and I are like God, human beings, God says that we are created, the Bible says, in his image, after his likeness. And one of the ways that you and I are like God is that we talk. Nothing else in creation talks but you and I, and that is one of the ways that we are like God. And because words um, are given to us in that way, and that, that is the way we are created in God's image, here's two other implications. Since God created the first words, words belong to him, not to us. In other words, God gives us words to use as a gift. Often we use words for our own selfish purposes and treat them as if they belong to us, but they actually belong to God and he gives us to human beings, gives them to human beings as a gift. And that is why that words are anything but ordinary. That's why words have such value. And are so significant in the world. And if you don't believe me, think about a person's life. Think about your own life. And and if you've been around young kids, how big a moment is it when a child speaks their first words? You pull out the video camera or the phone and you're sending it to everybody. On on, On the other end of the spectrum, what is more dehumanizing than when a human being goes silent? I had a student, when I was at Sanford, her father passed away of cancer. And you know that when I sat down to talk with her, the first thing that she talked about throughout the whole experience was the day her father went silent and could no longer talk. That's the first thing she wanted to talk about. It's when her father could no longer say those words, I love you. You see, words are so valuable and important. And that's what James is getting at here, isn't he? Look at chapter 3 of the book of James. James is saying that our words are a very important aspect of our faith. That our words are actually in action. Notice chapter 2. If you look at the context, he says faith apart from works is dead in James chapter 2. And then he moves immediately into this section on the tongue and on our words. And what is he saying? James is saying that our words are actually works. In other words, James is saying that our words actually prove and reveal our faith. James 1, verse 26. chapter One of the strongest verses in the whole book. If anyone considers himself religious, in other words, if anyone considers himself to be a Christian... Yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Tonight we're going to answer this question. What does this passage, James chapter 3, teach us about our words? Three things. Words are powerful. Words reveal our hearts. And thirdly, words reveal our need for Jesus. Look at number one. Words are powerful. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You've all heard that at some point as a kid. Maybe you've even said that at some point. But here's the thing. We all know as we sit here tonight that that is absolutely not true, is it? Because we all know that words actually do hurt and that words are actually... Very powerful. Look at verses 3 through 5. James uses three illustrations to show us the power of our words and of the tongue. He says that our words and the tongue is like a horse's bit. It's like a ship's rudder and it's like a fire among trees. Well, what's the point of all of those? The point is very simple. James is trying to show us this. That this little itty-bitty muscle in our mouths has tremendous power to control very large things. Think about the power of our words. Words have the power to give life. In other words, words are life-giving in that they can bring comfort to people. They can unify people. They can heal people. They can build up others. You can use them to encourage one another. Think about in your own life, and you know this is true, when you hear just the right words at just the right time, in just the right tone, from just the right person, what that does to you. It thrills your soul, and it sends you out into the world with an extra pep in your step. It sends you out into the world with great confidence. Why? Because words literally have the power to give life to our bones and to our soul. But words are also powerful in that they often destroy, don't they? And unfortunately, I don't have to convince you of this because there are some in this room that know that. Because even as I talk about that, you recall the most horrible things that have been said to you and been said about you and you recall them as if they were said to you yesterday. In the book, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, it's a movie about it as well, there's a boy named Oscar and his father died in the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack when, that took down the Twin Towers in New York City. And at one point in the movie, Oscar is so frustrated that he lashes out at his mom and says says to her that he wishes that she would have been the one that would have died that day. And in that moment, uh, he knew he shouldn't have said it, and he starts to try to take it back. And his mother at this point is weeping, and she says... You can't just take something like that back. And even as I share that story, you feel that, don't you? You feel the power of that and what it would be like for someone to say that to you. Why do you feel that? Because you feel how powerful words are and you feel that they can be used to wound and hurt and destroy. You know, unfortunately, if you look at this passage, it doesn't take long to read what James is saying here. He's dwelling on the negative, isn't he? He doesn't have a whole lot of positive things to say about how we use our words. Look at verses 6 and 8. He talks about the character of our speech. And he says it's always towards unrighteousness. He says the tongue, as the NIV says, is a fire, a world of evil. He then talks about the influence of our speech, and he says that it stains all it touches. The tongue corrupts the whole person, he says. He then touches on the continuation of that influence. And he says that we just don't grow out of the sins of our tongue like other sins. We just don't grow out of it. It sets the entire course of our life on fire. And then if that wasn't enough, he finishes it up with the affiliation of our tongue, which is really, to me, the strongest part of the passage. And he actually says that our tongue is pro-Satan and anti-God. Look at what he says. It is set on fire by hell. And he wraps it all together with this statement. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. He continues in verse 9. With our words, we curse the image of God. You see, that's why it's such a big deal when we talk in hurtful and harmful ways to other people. It's because we are actually speaking to someone that bears God's image. And that is why we must never think that it is okay to gossip. We must never think that slanderous, harsh, malicious, proud, unloving, ungracious words are ever okay. It is not okay. Our sinful and careless words actually dehumanize people. We actually make people less than human when we talk to them harshly in in slanderous and malicious ways. But you know, even as we read this, I don't think we get it. I know I don't get it. I struggle with this. I don't really see my words as venom. Which James says they're like venom that set the entire course of our life on fire. We don't get it because here's what we do. And I know this is what I often do. I say things like this. Susie, I know I shouldn't have said that. I know I was harsh with the girls. I was really frustrated, but I'm really tired. It's been a long week. Besides, you know that I'm pretty loving most of the time, and you know that, uh, you know, most of the time I'm pretty agreeable. Or maybe we say things like this I know I was being sarcastic. I know I was making fun of that person, but chill out, man. It's not that big a deal. Come on. I was just joking. See, we soften it, don't we? But James says that our words are invested with power. And that they can and often do actually destroy another person. You know this. Words have a long shelf life, don't they? And the words that we use can actually crush another person's faith, dash and damage their hopes, and destroy their identity. And so my question is, how are these things showing up in your lives tonight? How are these things showing up in your circle of friends and those that you interact with on a regular basis how are these things showing up in our ministries how are these things showing up tonight are you speaking life-giving words or when you think about the conversations that would you have with your friends, are those conversations often filled up with gossip and backbiting? Are they often filled up with making fun of someone else? Either that's present with you or maybe not present at the moment. Or are your conversations filled up with unharmful sarcasm? You know, one of the things I've learned over my seven years of campus ministry as I've interacted with a lot of students um, is guys in particular, sorry guys, uh, but often struggle uh, with having deep, meaningful conversation. And normally it's all centered around someone being the brunt of all the jokes, either someone that's there presently or someone that's not, not there at the moment. Or they struggle uh, in, with just unhelpful un, uh, and very harmful sarcasm uh, because they don't know how to have conversation that's below the surface that is actually encouraging and life-giving with other people. Does that describe your interaction with those in your groups? You know, sadly, there's only two times in a person's life that they often hear People that they love tell them what they really think about them. When do you think those are? When you get married and when you die. Rehearsal dinner and when somebody's on your deathbed, what happens when you call in the family and they get to say these last words? Friends, that should never be. I mean, think about this. Think about the amount of depression and insecurity and anxiety that exists right now among people in this room and how much of that would be cured if we could consistently interact with one another and use our words to give life rather than to tear down and destroy. Here's a very practical application. Who is one person tonight In your friend groups that you know desperately need some encouragement. Think about who they are. Go find them tonight. And speak an encouraging, life-giving word to that person. Words have tremendous power, number one. Secondly, words reveal the heart. Look at verses 3 through 6. If you look at those illustrations again, you'll realize that there's actually an agent that's exercising its will through the bit, through the rudder, and through the tongue. For example, the horse has a rider that is directing the horse through the bit. The ship has a pilot who is driving the boat and steering the rudder. And the tongue has someone that is expressing its will through speech that guides action. So what's the point? Well, James agrees with Jesus. James agrees with Jesus in that it is the heart that actually moves the tongue. Luke chapter 6. From out an o- for out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, what Jesus is saying there and what James is saying is that it isn't people that tick you off and cause you to be frustrated and to say things that are unhealthy and uh, and harmful and hurtful. It isn't the situation that you're in. James is actually saying that it is caused by the way your heart responds to those things. Have you ever said at some point when you're in a conversation with someone that you care about or maybe a friend? Have you ever said after saying something hurtful and harmful, "I'm so sorry." I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean to say that. Paul Tripp says what is more biblical to say is forgive me for saying what I meant. Because you see, if it wasn't in your heart, it would have never come out of your mouth in the first place. So what does this mean? Well, simply put, it means that our tongue and word problems are heart problems. I heard a story, I've shared this last semester actually, but it's a great uh, story about a young woman named Paige Benton Brown and she was an RUF intern at Vanderbilt University and she left there and she went to Dallas, Texas uh, and moved there and during her transition she needed an allergy medication refill on her prescription and she didn't you know she was right in the middle of transitioning and didn't have time to kind of establish a primary care physician in the area and her brother was a doctor and so she calls her brother and says hey listen i need a refill on this allergy medication can you please help me out her brother says well reluctantly yes i'll do it but you really need to get a doctor but i'll do this prescription for you this time three months passed same thing ran out called her brother her brother again reluctantly agreed. A year later, she calls again and says, "Hey, you know, I need that medication, you know, refilled again. Can you do that?" And he puts his foot down and says, "No way. That's it. It's the last time I'm doing it. Uh, you need to grow up, and you need to go to the doctor and get a physician in this area. Someone that can, uh, you can be under their care." So Paige grew up that summer. She went to the doctor for the first time in 10 years. And as she was getting a routine physical, you know, if you're a new patient, they kind of have a baseline. They want to start you on. So they were giving her a physical, and the doctor and her were chatting away. And the doctor puts the stethoscope up to her heart and pauses in mid-sentence and says, Tell me about your heart. She says, What do you mean, tell me about my heart? Tell you about my heart. There's nothing wrong with my heart. The doctor says, yes, there is. There's something wrong with the rhythm. You need to see a cardiologist right away. Paige is like freaking out, like I just came for Claritin. And now you're telling me that I need to see a cardiologist. So to tell you how serious it was, they got her into a cardiologist that afternoon. She goes to the cardiologist, they take her back for her appointment, the nurse hooks her up to the EKG machine, and the nurse and her are chatting, same thing happens, what is wrong with your heart? The doctor is going to want to see you right away. The doctor comes in and kind of prescribes the, the normal treadmill, puts her on a treadmill, gives her a sleep monitor to monitor her heart and her sleep, and takes an ultrasound of her heart. And come to find out, her dead asleep snoring, middle of the night, resting heart rate was hundred and fifty beats per minute. It had no regular rhythm and the doctor said that she could either fix it in one or two ways, medication for the rest of her life or she could have surgery to prescribe the problem. Paige reacts like, are you kidding me? I came for Claritin and now you're telling me that I need heart surgery. The doctor says, no, ma'am, you don't understand. You're in a very dangerous place with your heart. To which Paige replied, well, other than my heart, I'm healthy, right? And the doctor said, there is no health apart from your heart. You see, likewise, there is no health, spiritually speaking, friends, apart from our hearts. And if we're going to get more specific, there is no health with our words and the way we talk and the way we uh, use our tongue apart from our heart. Could it be tonight that the reason why you've never been able to have control in the way you speak about other people and to other people is because you've missed the root your heart. Friends, the only way we're ever going to experience true change in the way we talk, in the way we use our words, is when we stop blaming it on other people. Stop blaming the situation. Stop trying harder and working on better techniques and better vocabulary. And acknowledge that we are our worst communication problem. That it actually starts with us. You see, then and only then will we ever begin to change and talk differently. The problem is our hearts. Thirdly, we see that the words reveal our need for Jesus. Well, we've learned that our world of talk is a world of trouble, and it's pretty evident that our words are consistent indicators, aren't they? Of how desperately we need a Savior. Of how desperately we need to experience forgiveness. Because I don't know about you, but simply having this passage read earlier is really enough to make you want to get in the fetal position and just weep, isn't it? Because there's not a one of us, is there, that can say that we haven't hurt someone with our words. There's not a one of us that have not taken words that belong to God and that are a gift from God and used them for our own selfish purposes. There's not a one of us who have not used words as a weapon of anger rather than an instrument of peace. Better yet, there's not a one of us tonight that would be comfortable with us playing a public recording in parachates right now of all the words that you've spoken in the last month. Any takers? Certainly not me. Well, you know why it can't be me or you? Because look at verse 2. It takes a perfect man to raise his hand. And so, what's James doing? You know what James is doing? He's trying to take us to the end of our rope. And he's trying to get us to see that our words show us how desperately we need a Savior and need to be rescued. How desperately we need Him. He's trying to get us to give up hope in everything else but Jesus. Why? Well, because if our word problems are heart problems, and the Bible says that only Jesus can change our heart, then who do we need more than anything else? It's not trying harder. It's not doing better. More than anything else, we need Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8. I love this verse. Mankind subdues every kind of animal, but it cannot subdue itself. Think about that. Think about all the things. We can tame anything. We went to the circus with our girls a few years ago, and everything was tamed. Even the elephants, they were making do all these tricks and sit and stand on one foot and all kinds of crazy stuff. We can tame anything, but we cannot tame ourselves. What's the implication? What's very interesting in the wording is very specific by James. Look at what James says, verse 8. He says, no man can tame the tongue. So what's the implication? The implication is man can't, but God can And what is implied is that the only way we can change our words is if Jesus comes through the power of His Spirit and actually begins changing our hearts. And so listen to your words tonight. And instead of letting them defeat you and discourage you and send you into despair, my hope is that your words would send you to the cross. My hope is that our words would send us to receive the forgiveness that you and I so desperately need. Why? Because it's on the cross and it's when we're at the foot of the cross that we can hear Jesus calling out to God the Father and getting radio silence. And Jesus got radio silence back from God the Father on the cross so that you and I could hear the words I forgive you every time we use our words in a sinful way it's at the cross that we actually learn and this is huge that Jesus has died for every careless word that you've ever said in the past that you're saying right now and that you will say in the future but not only did we get forgiveness for all the careless words and sinful words that we've said, not only does Jesus forgive, but He also gives us His righteousness, doesn't He? One of my favorite passages, 1 Peter two twenty two. Jesus committed no sin, and listen to these words, and no deceit was found in His mouth. Friends, if you are a Christian, think about this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives you that righteousness. That perfect record of righteousness that He won on your behalf. And what does that mean? It means that you and I don't have to be afraid to face the horrors of our tongues. Because Jesus is your rescuer. Jesus is your redeemer. And He longs to redeem All of your words and all of my words. The children's book, The Boy Who Loved Words. It's about a young Jewish boy named Salig. Salig's friends collected stamps and coins. Salig collected words. He took words that came irresponsibly out of people's mouths He collected words that came out of people's mouths during conversation and he even cut words out of books and he took all those words and he stuffed them in the pockets of his pants and in the drawers in his room. One day, Salig's friends had a word for him and it was oddball. And Salig took that word too and he stuffed it in the pockets of his pants until one day sometime later, Salig understood and found out what that word meant and it crushed him and so he took his words and he put them in this little bag and he headed straight out of the city and as he left the city he ran into a genie remember it's a story (laughs) he ran into this genie on the street corner and the genie tells Selig that his mission in life is to gather up all of his words and to take them into the heart of the city and to speak loving words to his neighbors. And so Salah gets all of his words in his bag and he goes straight into the heart of the city. And then when he would pass by a bakery, he would take words out and he would sprinkle words by the bakery like delicious and super and fantastic. He would see two neighbors fighting. And he would sprinkle words like hush and peace and love. So much so that the neighbors actually began, began giving one another flowers because they actually started to care, one, for, care for one another. You see, you see, Selig used his words, and actually, the city was changed, relationships were changed, people fell in love, and businesses started to flourish. And Selig was actually a hero. He was known as the boy who had just the right words and spoke them at just the right time that in such a way that ultimately the city was actually healed and it actually began to flourish and thrive as never before. That is it. That's it, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're called to do. God's people are called to gather up all of the words because they're God's words. And we're called to march straight into our relationships, in our friendships, in our fraternity houses, in sorority houses, in our dormitories, in our families, into our cities, into our workplaces, and right into the heart of the campus at Ole Miss. And when we get there, We're supposed to speak life giving words so that all of our relationships start to flourish, so that people start to flourish, so that friendships start to flourish, and so that our campus starts to flourish. And you know, by the grace of God, we will get there. By the grace of God, we will start to see those things happening. In our friendships, relationships, and in this ministry and on this campus. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray that more than anything tonight, that we would be pointed to you that our words and our conviction over it and our brokenness over the way we use our words and our tongues would actually do what we talked about in this last point and lead us straight to the foot of the cross because that's what we need, that's what's going to change us and so Lord would you do that, be gracious to us don't uh, I pray for every one glance at our sin, we would glance 10 times more at the cross. Father, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Would you help us to see Jesus in the gospel tonight? Uh, And would you change our hearts so that we begin to talk differently, talk differently to our friends and families and all those around us so that people start to flourish? We long for that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So, before we sing, I'd like to say a little bit about the song, if you will bear with me for a second. The text from this song comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 4. So, I'm going to read this verse. Briefly. It's the word of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will, will be stolen. Hear my name, the Son of Righteousness.